a lot of the things that we had talked about in emergency medicine and even a lot of the things that we're talking about on this podcast um, and a lot of the guests that you all bring on have been doing work in this field for a long time. So the questions that we're asking about decision-making and for me, stress and burnout and mindset have maybe not been answered, but have been studied in depth in some of these other fields. And sometimes medicine can be very siloed. So to get the perspective of somebody that's been doing this um, in a different field for a long time and bringing in their expertise was really exciting. Hi, folks. I'm Dan Dworkis, and this is the Emergency Mind Podcast, a space where we bring together lessons from the emergency department and beyond about performance when it matters the most and applying knowledge under pressure. In this episode, you're going to hear Dr. Andrea Austin interviewing Dr. Melissa Joseph about a variety of topics around simulation, around the human response to stress, and around a deep dive in the science into things like heart rate variability. There's a ton of really cool stuff here, but before we jump in, I actually want to turn the mic over to Dr. Austin for a slightly different reason. And you're going to hear from her in just a second about an exciting new project that she's been a part of, the Revitalized Women's Physician Circle. Has the pandemic left you drained and exhausted? Are you looking for more work-life harmony and fulfillment from your work? The Revitalized Women Physician Circle is a community that offers group coaching and mastermind groups to help you reconnect with your values, define your boundaries, and reshape your career to allow you to thrive. This company was founded by me, Dr. Andrea Austin, co-host on The Emergency Mind, and Dr. Linda Lawrence. As emergency doctors, we know the unique stress that physicians, especially women, have faced during this pandemic. The Revitalize approach puts you at the center to reflect, restore, and revive your sense of self and purpose in medicine. You deserve to thrive. We've been in survival mode, and we can't keep going down that road. Check out our website, peoplealways.com revitalize, and schedule a personalized consultation to start thriving today. We are also on Twitter, at Revitalize Women, and LinkedIn, at Revitalize Women Physician Circle. Obviously a really important topic and definitely a group worth checking out. Okay, all of that said, let's jump right into this episode. I hope you enjoy. Hi, this is Andrea Austin, co-host of The Emergency Mind. I am so excited to bring you an episode I recorded with Dr. Melissa Joseph in June of 2021. Dr. Joseph trained at LA County USC and later went on to do a fellowship in medical simulation at Yale. She stayed at Yale, and she's an emergency medicine faculty member and also teaches via medical simulation. Dr. Joseph is an expert in heart rate variability. We'll dig into what that is and how we can use it to inform our performance. This is a fascinating conversation, and I learned so much. Enjoy. We like to start the show with your origin story. So tell us a little bit about how you ended up in emergency medicine and ultimately along your path of understanding how people can perform better under pressure. I think this is going to be a recurring theme in this talk, but um, basically my mentors led me into emergency medicine. So I came into medical school at USC not really knowing much about medicine as a whole, having some experience, you know, volunteering, coming in, but not knowing what I wanted to do at all. A lot of the emergency medicine physicians 
physicians at LA County are really involved in the medical school. So I met Stuart Swadron in my first year of medical school um, and many other attendings who really helped teach us in those early years. And so when I was looking through different specialties, I really wanted to look at emergency medicine because I really valued um, how they were clinically and, and their knowledge base. So I went to do a shadow shift uh, in the emergency department and I show up and they bring me back to Seabooth. It was in the old county hospital and there's this big setup behind Seabooth where you can walk up some stairs and stand on this little platform overlooking the trauma bay. And I remember I went in and they got a couple of traumas shortly thoreafter and Soon enough, I was watching a thoracotomy kind of right underneath me in the middle of Seabooth. And, you know, there were four patients in the bay and they were all right next to this patient having his chest opened. And then whoever I was shadowing, you know, it might have been Dr. Swadron came over and grabbed me and said, oh, you should come see this patient with me. So I walked down the steps and I walk over to the other side of the emergency department to the medical side. He says, well, we're not going to go in the room because it's an isolation room because this man has TB, but look at him. And he's just coughing up mountains of blood. <laughs> and he's, you know, calmly explaining to me, well, this man has massive hemoptysis from his TB and he's going to be intubated. And this is what we're doing to do that. I was like, what is happening in this emergency department? What is going on down here? So I left that day thinking, you know, sign me up. I'm in. Wow. I just really want to drive that picture home to our audience. It's pretty unusual, the setup that was present at LA County USC back in the day. So Seabooth was this iconic setup in the emergency department in which there was actually a spot where you could view patients in the emergency department in the critical area, similar to how you could watch many years ago in the operating room. And so really it was an observation area for medical students and other learners and a very unique setup. So in a way, you know, I, I just can't imagine what it was like to see that. So how did you go from thinking, okay, this is really cool, but very overwhelming to feeling like, okay, I can do this. I, I feel like I eventually could be in a place where I'm managing a patient that's had a thoracotomy and walking to managing a patient with massive hemoptysis. Well, I think that only took four years of residency. <laughs> so, no, I mean, I walked into intern year. We were in the new hospital then. So you say, you know, you can't imagine watching this. I can't imagine practicing in that environment. And I never uh, did because when I was an intern, we had just moved into the new hospital. I walked into my intern year and I saw these senior residents managing recess and managing all of these critical traumas simultaneously and they were a hundred percent in charge and so calm and so capable and as a terrified intern i thought i'm you know never going to get there and i realized as i watched them that they had this entirely different skill set that wasn't really medical knowledge we can learn and we can read and we can memorize tintinelli's but that doesn't necessarily make you an amazing emergency physician. There was this entirely other skill set that these residents had that I didn't know how to learn. <laughs> and I wanted to know how to learn that. And so what I did was decide, okay, well, I'm just going to soak everything up. I'm going to watch them. I'm going to watch what they do. I'm going to watch what they say. I'm going to try to 
basically do everything that they're doing and maybe throughout this residency, I will pick some of that up and I'll come out, you know, one eighth of an amazing human being that these PGY4s are. Right. So I think that's really the old model, the apprenticeship model. And I also think, you know, you and I have talked a lot about this outside of this recording, that the skills that we want people to develop to be able to perform under pressure have sometimes been labeled the soft skills, which to me is very annoying and demeaning because they're not. These are really difficult skills to be able to manage a team uh, during a complex, stressful resuscitation. So tell us more about how you began to operationalize that, because it sounds like even back into residency, you were already starting to develop a mind for thinking about how to perform under pressure. So the way that residency was set up for us and for a lot of programs across the country is you have your first two years, you're a junior resident, you're learning. And in the last two years, you turn into more of a senior resident. And that comes along with a lot more teaching. So now you're in this teaching role. And I felt a lot of responsibility as a PGY3 to teach the PGY1s, which is who we were paired with at the time. I tried on a lot of different styles of teaching that I had seen my attendings do, and it really just wasn't working for me. I'm not, I don't have that kind of mind where I can rattle off papers. And and so I was talking with one of my mentors, uh, Taku Tyra, and I was telling him, I don't really know how to find myself as this educator. And he told me where I think your skill set is figuring out how to teach your decision-making process to your junior residents. And that caught me totally off guard because I thought, well, I don't understand what what you mean. My decision-making process is I talk to the patient, I examine them, I think about it, and then I decide. And so that really took me down this pathway of how do I teach my decision-making process? How do we all teach our decision-making process as more senior emergency physicians to the people that come behind us? And how can we take this away from the bedside and turn it into something that's a a little bit more structured, um, something that's away from the chaos of the emergency and reflect on all the resident. We were in charge of doing the didactics uh, during the conference days. And so I started this series where I would take cases that I saw that really required a lot more decision-making, under pressure, prioritization, all of these, quote, soft skills that we had learned about. And I would walk the residents through the case, say, okay, this patient came in as a motorcyclist who was injured, he's hypoxic, he's still on the stretcher, he's extremely agitated, what do you do? And we would take this step by step and we would reflect on what the different decisions were that the residents would make and go through it. Reflected the end what the ultimate diagnosis was and the different pathways that you could have taken for treatment. Well, now I realize in hindsight, that's just a really low fidelity way to do simulation. So that was kind of my first foray into doing simulated cases. um, And that's what really led me down the path to where I am now. So a lot of our audience are medical students and residents. So during that time when you were a chief resident and you were just starting to get interested in how to help people perform better under pressure, what were the formative books or resources you were using during that time period? 
So I was gifted the book Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman, and I really liked how it laid out this idea of heuristics and how we interpret information, and more so how we make decisions um, based on those heuristics and how that can both help us and hurt us. So I thought that it was a really good overview of just you know how the mind works um, and how we can critically appraise some of the conclusions that we're making uh, in you know such a rapid fashion as we're doing in the emergency department. Another one that I thought was really interesting is the book On Combat um, by Dave Grossman. You know, it's not completely applicable to medicine because there's a lot more higher personal stakes in the military, but it introduces the concept of physiologic response during stress and how that can influence your decision making and how you can modulate that or at least be aware of it as you're heading into these situations. It's so interesting. I also read On Combat my last year of residency and actually that was the inspiration for my Grand Rounds topic that really thrusted me into this field of stress inoculation and performance. So I agree. If you're an emergency mind listener, then those two books are just mandatory reading and will definitely add to your armamentarium. So let's pivot to what happened after residency because you really took a very deliberate approach to becoming a simulation educator. And for the audience, medical simulation is still a relatively new field compared to some of our other training tracks in medicine. And Dr. Joseph has really spent a lot of time in deliberate study of this field. And I'd I'd like to hear more about what was your simulation fellowship experience and, and how does that relate to your interest in performing better under pressure? So I came out of residency and I actually went into community practice for about 18 months as my husband finished his fellowship and I actually loved it. I worked with a great group outside of uh, Denver, Colorado. And when it came time to decide what we were doing after that, we had a lot of choices and I was very happy in the community. And so we were trying to decide, you know, should we stay community? My husband was more on an academic track um, because he had finished an EMS fellowship. And together we were looking across the country at all of these different opportunities. And we had come across Yale which both had an opportunity for him in EMS, but also had this simulation fellowship. And to be perfectly honest, I did not know that simulation fellowships existed. I knew that medical simulation was around and that some institutions were doing a lot more than other institutions, but it really piqued my interest. And so I started looking into it a little bit further and spoke with my now boss about her philosophy and interest in simulation, and it really clicked with what I was interested in. So I came in as a fellow off cycle, and the simulation setup at Yale is really unique. So our residents come through for two weeks on a dedicated rotation. They spend Monday through Friday in the Sim Center, and we have multiple different simulation faculty that all have different areas of expertise. So we have a proceduralist, we have a pediatric emergency medicine physician, we have a toxicologist, um, and then we have now two of us that do more core EM and teamwork dynamics. And so as a fellow, I worked with each one of the faculty members during their sim days and really got an experience across the board as to all of their different techniques. And then we do a dedicated training for debriefing um, and put that into practice with the residents. So it was a really intensive first year, just learning all of the techniques of simulation and 
entrance into a world that I really didn't know existed before, but fell into line with exactly what I'm interested in, which is how do you teach decision making uh, away from the bedside and how can you do it in a structured, deliberate way? So it was somewhat serendipitous, but it ended up being perfect for, for my career. Can you explain to the audience a little bit about how you train emergency medicine residents at Yale and use simulation? Because just as a little bit of a background for the audience, I've now worked at three different residency programs and each has used simulation variably. I would say most have had some form of simulation once a month that at least touched at least one class. But what you do at Yale is very different. So I think that would be interesting to talk about. Yeah, it's a really great setup. We're lucky in that both the chair and the program director are very supportive of simulation-based education. For each year uh, of residency, the resident will rotate through the Sim Center for two weeks. So at any one given time, we have a smattering of PGY1 through PGY4. Uh, residents on rotation. Typically, it's about three to four residents on uh, at one time. And we run through cases. So it's a very natural team. It's the same team they work uh, with in the emergency department with the senior and junior dynamic. And we primarily do high fidelity simulation cases um, with core emergency medicine topics, some pediatrics, um, and some more communication, uh, teamwork-based simulations as well. They spend two days of the rotation just going through procedures. Jay Bonds is our proceduralist and he's amazing and he he goes through the ins and outs of all of these uncommon procedures that we just don't have time to practice clinically before we're headed into the real thing like transvenous pacing or crikes or thoracotomies um, and things like that. We also do some in situ sim, um, which is really interesting because we take our team and we run simulation in the actual emergency department. We bring our um, high fidelity mannequin and the monitor, and usually it's the residents who are on simulation who will be the participants in the sim, and then we will grab nurses and techs that are on shift in that moment, and we'll do a sim all together um, intra-professionally, and then be able to debrief it afterwards using the equipment that's in the room and talk about some of the things that worked and some of the things that didn't work. And it really helps us make changes in real time in the clinical environment for, you know, better care of our patients. You absolutely read my mind. I was going to say, is there that feedback of, hey, this happened in a sim, we couldn't find this piece of equipment or it was expired. Could we please change this in the department? And is that something like your leadership is responsive to? Yeah, definitely. In some of the in-situ sims, we realized that each R room was set up differently as far as where all of the supplies were and the airway cart. And that was one of the outcomes of the simulation was that that all got standardized. But little changes like that that just make your working day a lot more efficient. So I'd like to turn to what you're doing in the research realm. And you and I have collaborated in the past and had a lot of conversations about how can we provide objective information to people about their stress level and how could we use different biomarkers to improve performance under pressure. So you've done a lot of work in that space and I'm really just going to turn it over to you about where to start this conversation and and unpack it. Sure. So another one of the really interesting and 
cool things about the fellowship that I did was that it put me in the space to work with a lot of really inspiring people. And a lot of my colleagues are doing amazing research um, and highly value that. So it put me in this new mindset where I was free to investigate really whatever I wanted to and have the resources to do it. And it just so happened that about the time I started my fellowship, my boss hired a PhD, uh, Jessica Ray, who's a human factors PhD. And so we spent a lot of time sitting across from each other at our desks, just talking and getting to know one another and, you know, just talking about the different ways that her field of human factors applies to EM. It was really eye-opening to me because a lot of the things that we had talked about in emergency medicine and even a lot of the things that we're talking about on this podcast um, and a lot of the guests that you all bring on have been doing work in this field for a long time. So the questions that we're asking about decision-making and for me, stress and burnout and mindset have maybe not been answered, but have been studied in depth in some of these other fields. And sometimes medicine can be very siloed. So to get the perspective of somebody that's been doing this um, in a different field for a long time and bringing in their expertise was really exciting. So that collaboration led me into an interest of physiologic response uh, during emergency medicine. Basically, how do our bodies respond to being in a stressful situation? Um, so the first question was, well, how could we measure this? We thought about things like using cortisol, amylase, IL-1 beta, a lot of uh, urine catecholamines or surveys, you know, a lot of things that have been used in the past but aren't really that accessible. So you either need to get blood or you need to get saliva or it takes hours to rise and you're not really reflecting a moment to moment change. Um, or survey data that would be really intrusive to, you know, give every hour on shift and, and try to collect a survey that way. So I was really looking for the right marker. And that led me to find heart rate variability. So heart rate variability has actually been used for a very long time. Literally the beat to beat variability of your heart rate. So if you were to an EKG um, and you're in normal sinus rhythm and you take an EKG and you look at the R to R interval, it's going to be slightly different between each beat. And that difference is heart rate variability. So it's actually a direct reflection of your autonomic nervous system. So when you have a high sympathetic tone, your heart rate variability goes down. You're less variable. If you have a high parasympathetic tone, you've got a vagal dominance, that heart rate variability goes up. You have a lot of difference beat to beat between your um, QRS complexes. And it's really interesting because one, it's real time. So it's something that you can measure continuously and you can watch it change over seconds to minutes and you can measure it in various time intervals and it tells you different things. But not only is it real time, but now that we have better technology, we can do it without doing the big Holter monitor with all of the leads and wires. We can do it really non-invasively. And a lot of your listeners probably have an Apple Watch, which now includes <laughs> that function in the Apple Watch itself. So, so it's really accessible. Um, it's something that we can measure throughout an entire shift or through whatever we're measuring. Um, and it is a really good reflection of your autonomic nervous system and has a lot of um, data behind it that 
that supports its use. So I just want to summarize for the listeners a little bit about heart rate variability, because the first time you hear it, it's a little bit confusing. So a lot of us feel like, okay, well, if my heart rate goes up when I'm stressed, that's probably bad. And what we're seeing through the research is it's not so much that your heart rate goes up, it's how fast you recover. And there was a study done with some emergency medicine and pediatric residents on their pediatric ICU rotation. And what they actually found is the EM residents had improved heart rate variability. So their heart rates went up more, but they recovered more quickly than the pediatric residents. And presumably it's probably because they had been exposed to more emergencies and had more of that parasympathetic tone develop. So definitely look into heart rate variability. There's a great episode that Dan did with one of the WHOOP employees and trainers on this topic of heart rate variability. But pressing on that concept a little bit more, how are you personally using heart rate variability? Are you tracking it right now? How is it influencing your performance? So I'm not using it personally, but we are doing a few different research studies with it right now. Um, the interesting thing about heart rate variability is that it has been linked to burnout processes, including like increased risk for mortality. Um, and it's also been linked to high job strain, low job control, and overnight shifts. So all of this sounds very relevant to us in emergency medicine. Um, so I had a few questions that I wanted to answer, and I thought that heart rate variability could help us. So. The first question I had was, is all of the stress we're experiencing in the emergency department the same? So you walk into a trauma, the patient's unstable, they require an emergent airway, trauma surgery hasn't arrived yet, you're starting the thoracotomy, you're organizing your team. There's a lot of things that are happening in that space that are very stressful. But on the flip side to that, there's a different kind of stress in emergency medicine. So say now you're not in the trauma bay, you're over on the less acute side and you're seeing three to four patients an hour, half of your side is boarding, waiting to be admitted. The nurse in your assignment has a ton of patients. The patient's family members yelling at you. You know, you've got another patient who's naked running down the hall and the off-service intern keeps going rogue and ordering D-dimers on your patients. That's a whole different kind of stress. And I think at face value, we can understand that those are two different processes and those are two different types of stress, but we don't really talk about that a whole lot when we're talking about stress in emergency medicine. So I wanted to take a look at this and this idea of different types of stress has been studied before. So in, if you look in the human factors literature, um, they talk about task stress and how different tasks can exert different types of stress on your body. So we used SIM uh, as a research tool and we set up a controlled clinical environment and we wrote six simulation cases. And then we decided on three stressors that we felt like were different. So one stressor was the patient got really sick. The second stressor was the patient or the family member were either upset or a little bit verbally aggressive, um, just a difficult person to interact with. And then the third stressor was a technological issue. So the packs went down, labs weren't available, 
trying to recreate that, you know, epic downtime type of stress. Um, (laughs) Yeah, right? (laughs) Yeah, I I know all about that. (laughs) Exactly. So we randomized those stressors into the different simulation cases, and we randomized the order of the simulation cases, and we had our residents run through them on their simulation rotation. Um, And we put them in a smart shirt that measures heart rate variability. And then at the end of each case, we surveyed them um, looking at three different types of task stress that have been established before. So the three different types of task stress that we looked at, the first one was task engagement. So that's how interested are you in this task? How focused are you in this task? Are you motivated? How well are you concentrating? So the higher your task engagement, um, that's been linked with higher performance. The second domain was distress. So this is like negative emotion. This is a perceived lack of control of the situation. Mm -hmm. And then finally is worry. So this is self-intrusive thoughts. This is thoughts that are maybe negative self-esteem based. They're intrusive. And both of those are correlated with decreased performance on some tasks. But the difficult family member stood out. So all three of those stressors were associated with lower heart rate variability. So increased sympathetic tone but the difficult family member was associated with increased distress. I think that makes a lot of sense when you think about it based on our practice in emergency medicine. And it really drives home that there are different kinds of stressors that we're dealing with and maybe we need to treat them a little bit differently from one another. That is so exciting. I just, I love this research that you're doing and it resonates a little bit with something I've been reading about and I'm just curious what your thoughts are based I know you have a lot more access to the data and you can't go through everything but I really enjoyed reading Susan David's book Emotional Agility and in that book so what she talks a lot about is positive psychology has gotten too much credit that when you're in a stressor you're supposed to be like Oh, I'm like during COVID. Oh, I'm so happy that I get to have a job as an emergency physician. I should be really thankful that I'm getting a paycheck and I should not be upset about the risks that I'm experiencing and that this person is screaming at me with their mask off. And I mean, that's honestly a bunch of bullshit, right? (laughs) Like, I mean, anybody understands that the feel the reason that you're upset is extremely valid it's extremely valid that you're an emergency physician working during a pandemic someone screaming at you with their mask off would be upsetting so what she suggests is in that moment to go yeah i'm really i'm upset right now because that is a really disrespectful behavior and i might understand why that patient's doing that or i might you know understand that they have some physical or mental things that are contributing to their behavior right now. But as a human, I'm upset about that right now. So I'm wondering, she calls that emotional sign posting that you feel something, you pause, you name it, and then uh, deal with that. What may be a very negative thing, like I am actually really upset right now that someone's doing that to me. Um, Instead of like, I should just be thankful I have a job. I think that's so important. I think that we deal with a lot of really unusual and highly stressful and highly not okay things on a daily basis. And it's part of the bigger picture of reflection and just reflecting in that moment. This is not okay. This person is probably sick. 
you know, physically or psychologically, or there's something underlying this behavior and it's not my fault, but at the same time, I feel very upset about this. And I think that that's really powerful. And I think that I get the same feeling when we start talking about burnout, even though it's my area of interest. <laughs> when I hear people say, oh, we're having a, a speaker come talk about burnout, I automatically have this reaction of eye roll. And I think it's justified. And even though we talk about techniques specifically to kind of modulate your autonomic nervous system, like box breathing and the importance of wellness and taking care of yourself at the same time, that's not going to get you through a lot of the things that we're dealing with on a daily basis, or at least that's not the solution. So like you can't box breathe your way out of the fact that there's more people boarding in your emergency department than you actually have beds. Four nurses called out. So your, uh, your nurse is completely frazzled, has two different assignments. The nurses upstairs refuse to float down and somehow magically they're you know not forced to do that. And then you just got room to STEMI in the hallway next to the vaginal discharge in the hallway. And these are all external things that cause a lot of stress and I think a lot of burnout as well. And while we can maximize our own wellness internally, there's a lot of things that need to happen on the systemic level to change, you know, the underpinnings of what's making us burned out as emergency physicians. Absolutely. I think all of us are at a point where, you know, this is most of us, honestly, I think have maximized our personal resilience. You know, I really feel like as an attending, I do have enough time to sleep. I do have enough time to eat properly if I choose. And it's really these systems issues that have been quite vexing. That being said, you know, I think what we've also seen from the literature is you can be in a very stressful and dysfunctional system and there still are some protective things that you and the system can do to make that better. So one of the most protective things is having good relationships. So when you're in that crappy situation of getting the STEMI and having the poor woman that is in the hallway with vaginal discharge and really just needs a room for privacy and everything that you can look at your colleague and be like, wow, this is a really hard shift. And even just a small moment of that person looking at you and validating like, yeah, this is really hard. Um, what can I do? Can I, you know, let me go pick up that next patient. You just took the last four. Something small like that is huge. Yeah, it's so true. Having that community can be so protective. And I remember in residency, somewhere in the depths between second and third year, and we were just working so much and I felt so burned out in that time. I kept having these sign outs to co-residents where we all felt very similarly. And finally we said, let's go, you know, go grab a beer. Let's go out to happy hour tomorrow. It's, you know, block change. So most of us are off for the evening and we're just gonna go get together. And we spent two hours just commiserating and talking about how burned out we were and how stressed we were and all of the different things that we had dealt with over the past few months. And we didn't come out of it with any sort of solution or anything life-changing, but even just having that conversation and learning that all of these amazing human beings felt the same way that I did, 
made me feel better just walking out of that alone. Um, so having that community is really important. So circling back, we started this tangent with heart rate variability and how we can use that as an objective marker of our stress. Do you have any takeaways for the audience at this point about how we can use that with the information we have thus far? Well, I think one of the most interesting things about heart rate variability is that we can control it. So it's part of the autonomic nervous system, but we actually have some influence over it and that comes through breath. And so this is where the idea of box breathing or combat breathing, or even really just the breathing techniques that we do in meditation actually work. So you are exerting some control over your parasympathetic nervous system to slow down your heart rate and shift yourself more back into that neutral, more vagal tone area. And I think that for us as emergency physicians, this is important to even just understand because you can use this to your benefit on shift. So we know that a little bit of stress can be helpful, but way too much stress and we start task uh, shedding, we start premature closing, um, we have a hard time focusing on the big picture when we're really in that sympathetic overdrive situation. So how we can use this is to kind of manipulate ourselves, <laughs> even just using our breath. So while you're in, you can use this two ways. One would be you're in a really stressful um, medical patient or trauma and you think I just need to reset and get control of my you know heart rate that's flying out of control right now because I feel very stressed so you can do some box breathing in that moment and shift yourself back up onto that curve more toward you know your parasympathetic nervous system the other time is you're doing that you know slog it out shift in the non-acute side and it's just an overwhelming shift start to end. If you can take some time every hour to just sit and breathe quietly and recenter, that really does make big changes in your body and pushes you back to a space where you can think more clearly um, and make more uh, thorough decisions. Yeah, I think those are both great tips. And I think for a lot of the listeners, and I still haven't figured this out completely, you know, the first step to being able to breathe is to recognize that you need to breathe. And that takes time. And I really don't feel like I started to tap into that until the end of residency and my first few years out of residency that like, wow, I'm actually really ramped up right now. Most of us have similar tells, but start the first step is to start to learn your tells and your cues for when you're starting to get ramped up and then be able to hit the pause button. And like we're when we say a pause button, we're really talking about a few seconds, at least initially. Um, and sometimes you only have a few seconds. But, you know, what that really looks like for me is if it is that trauma, you're setting up for a procedure, even if it's a crash chest tube, it takes at least a few seconds to open the kit. And while you're opening the kit, incorporate that breathing. But to me, that's really the easier side. And I totally agree with you. It's harder on the shifts that are the slog out shift. And it's harder and easier, I guess, because you actually do have time. And this is something that I've learned over the last couple of years is during those shifts, there's rarely a true emergency. So you actually do have time to go to the bathroom, mm -hmm. make sure you're fed. Mm -hmm. And when something is particularly irritating, 
you can sit by yourself if that's what you need to do. Or what I found to be more helpful because I'm a talker, that's the best time to get up. And actually, I think county has a really good culture of this. Go walk to the other pod, find another attending or resident and like say, oh, my gosh, you can't believe what just happened over there. (laughs) And that again, that commiserating and it doesn't need to be two hours, like even just going over for five minutes and having that little break, um, usually, especially, um, you know, the people we work with, usually you're going to be able to laugh (laughs) and that releases a few endorphins. So I love that. Um, I really, really love that. So what you're saying is probably at this point, our Apple watch isn't as accurate as it needs to be for tracking heart rate variability in real time. But even without that information, there is enough data for you to start to modulate your heart rate variability with the techniques that we know will work. Yeah, exactly. So one, I still do that. I definitely just get up, walk over to the other side of the emergency department and either vent or even just socialize. You know, I I work nights and there's another attending that I'm almost always opposite. And I walk over and I talk with her and her kids are all grown. She always wants to see pictures of my kids. And we just talk and have social time for a little bit. She tells me what ridiculous things happened on her side. I tell her what ridiculous things happened on my side. And then you can walk back and feel a little bit refreshed. But yeah, you don't need any sort of fancy tracking device uh, or anything that's even following your heart rate in real time. I think the real take home is that by looking at this technology in the sim lab and clinically as well, we know that these breathing techniques work. So we can watch in real time that heart rate variability fall. And so as long as you can remember, and that's the key, is remembering um, to do the breathing techniques, then you really can expect results from that. Like we said, the step one is reflect and remember to do the techniques. But even before that, we need to make space to practice them. So you know, Dan talks about doing the performance under increasing pressure, you need to do the same thing when you're practicing these techniques. So remember to do them throughout your day um, and they'll become second nature when you feel yourself becoming stressed. I think that's a really good tip. And Dan has brought it up on the show before that you can't expect to execute these techniques under the most extreme circumstances and they have to become second nature. So something I've been working on, Southern California traffic's back. Um, This is a key way you can practice it instead of, you know, that urge to flip someone off, instead breathe. So, And that's much safer because we've seen a lot of road rage um, incidences in Southern California recently. So traffic's a good time. Um, The other time I figured out a good time to practice these techniques is when I'm on the phone with customer service. And this is a great chance to practice, okay, I'm going to breathe, I'm going to, you know, count to five before I, you know, respond, even though this is the, you know, third time I've gone through with what the issue is, and I think the person should understand it. (laughs) One, I do not miss the traffic in Southern California. That is one thing I don't miss. Uh, (laughs) I miss a lot of things about SoCal, but that's not one of them. Yeah, yeah. But even on shift, if you know, a resident is giving me a particularly long-winded presentation, or maybe that patient is just going on and on and on. Instead, you know, I fight that urge to cut them off and that's when I breathe. 
it recenters you, you know, it's better for patient care, it's better for teaching. It's just a good opportunity to remind yourself to do it. I really can't wait to have you back. There's so much more for us to talk about, but we like to end every episode with what are you working on to improve your own personal performance? And what do you have for a challenge for our audience to improve their performance? All right. Well, for myself, I'm trying to find balance in my life. Um, I'm prioritizing myself and trying to invest time into things that I know give me energy and allow me to reset. So that's exercising, that's spending time with my family, trying to be fully present with my kids, but also, you know, blocking off time um, that I need to work so that I can do it all without guilt. I'm really just trying to optimize like the energy and motivation that I'm able to come into shift with. And I think a lot of that comes from balance um, when you're not working. Absolutely. And it's always a juggling act and everything's constantly shifting. Yeah. And then I think for a challenge, my challenge is to just reflect. So for the listeners out there after your next shift or whatever you're doing in life, just really take the time afterward to reflect on it and debrief with yourself. Just think back through the decisions you made. Would you make them any differently now? Looking back, what do you think were the factors that influenced those decisions in real time? And was there anything that you could have done in that moment to modulate that if if necessary? Or was it a great decision and you're proud of what you did in that moment and what were the things that set you up for success. Um, and don't be afraid to you know, make little tweaks as you go along based on those reflections. I love that so much. And I think becoming really good at reflecting is absolutely necessary to becoming an expert in your field. And the one piece of advice is, you know, we've got a lot of our listeners or medical students and residents. If you're reflecting on something and you're like, oh, F, I really messed that up and that was really bad and I'm a bad doctor or I'm a bad person for what happened. Check that because what I found and I've seen it several times and unfortunately I've had residents wait weeks before they've come and told me about a case. When they tell me, I'm like, oh, actually, you know, I think the standard of care was met. That was a really unusual situation and the outcome really was not dependent on what you did. Mm -hmm. And I wish they would have came to somebody to process that sooner instead of sitting with it. So I think definitely reflect, but if you're finding that you're in a shame spiral, as Brene Brown would mm -hmm. say, you probably shouldn't be. Now I'm not saying that there's not times that we need to check ourselves and be accountable for something that we did, but even that needs to be modulated in like, okay, everybody makes mistakes, especially in something as complex as emergency medicine. Check that with somebody. Um, and we have to do that. And I'm much better now when something happens to be kinder to myself and to reach out to a colleague and be like, what do you think about this? Like, this is what mm -hmm. happened, you know, nine times out of 10. It's like, okay, maybe there was a, like a little tweak or, you know, that's good to think about, but usually not as bad as we've built it up in our head. Definitely. I think, you know, as attendings, we do that all the time. We run cases by each other. What do you think about this? What would you do in this situation? Sometimes that's why I'm walking across the emergency department is to talk about a case and, and ask, what would you do with this? Um, I think that's really common. And also to remember in the early parts of your training, 
you have a whole team around you. And so that's a very easy team to debrief with. Um, if you think that something didn't go well, or you're blaming yourself for something that you did or didn't do, remember that you have a support network there. Um, and you can definitely at any time talk to, to the other team. I love it. All right. Well, thanks everyone for joining us. And we'll definitely have Dr. Joseph back because there's just so many more great topics in the field of stress to cover. Thanks for having me. All right, folks, that brings us to the end of this episode. I hope you learned something and I hope you enjoyed. As always on this podcast, our goal is to dive deep into what it takes to perform under pressure. Nothing that we discuss here should be construed as medical advice, and all of the opinions that we discuss are our own and are not necessarily representative of any organization with which we were affiliated or for whom we work. If you want to go even deeper and get more involved, don't forget to check out our book. It's called The Emergency Mind, Wiring Your Brain for Performance Under Pressure, and you can find it at emergencymind.com book. All right, good luck out there.